Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I am finally finishing my book review of Honey Bee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. This episode is going to summarise chapter 10 and the epilogue. This final chapter looks to the honeybees in a swarm for guidance on how human groups can come to a fair and accurate decision, while the epilogue summarises the contents of the book neatly and succinctly. I thank you for sticking with me this far and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is also brought to you by rum and ginger ale because it's been one heck of a day. I am finally sitting down to record in the evening while I wait for my dinner to cook and I am very tired and grumpy. So I'm glad I've got this time and I'm going to fill you in on what's been going on here on the homestead. So firstly, I want to talk about my whippet Luna For those of you who follow me on Instagram, you'll have seen that we recently had a little scare with her. She threw up a little bit of water and kibble from breakfast about 4pm on Friday. And I didn't really think anything of it. Um, Anyone with dogs knows that sometimes your dogs will drink a huge amount of water all at once and then it kind of comes back up a little bit. It's not unusual, it happens here. Well, an hour later, my husband called me in and he was concerned because Luna was breathing oddly and he wanted my opinion. Sure enough, my little noodle was breathing really hard and she was making a very odd sort of rasping noise as well. Her gums were pale, her ears were cold and she seemed very groggy and lethargic. So I immediately threw on real clothes. Um, I basically live in, you know, slogs most of the time these days during these hashtag pandemic times. Bundled her into the car and we drove about 22 minutes to the emergency vet while my husband called ahead to let them know that we were coming and to start the check-in process. That was a really, really long car ride for me. I was terrified that she would go downhill really quickly and I couldn't stop thinking about the worst case scenario of her possibly dying in the back seat while we were on the way there because I worry and I love her very much. Well, I managed to keep myself together. We got there in good time. And I have to say that the staff at my local emergency vet are absolutely phenomenal. Um, You can't go in anymore because of uh, pandemic protections, but basically you call when you arrive and they come out and they triage your animal in the car. And they told me that despite her breathing and her gums, her vitals were actually really good. And I think I took my first sort of big breath at that point and started to calm down. And so they basically said that because her vitals were doing were so good that um, they had to, you know, prioritize more urgent cases and we might be there for a little while. And that was fine. Um, I curled up in the back seat with her and just sort of petted her and reassured her that everything was okay. We waited probably about two hours, maybe a little longer. In that two hour period, the text came out again and just double checked good making sure that she wasn't going downhill which I really appreciated and actually in the time it took for us to get to see the vet um, things started to improve so she stopped making the weird rasping sound she was still breathing fast but not quite as heavily and she just became a lot more alert so when we left the house for instance in the car she kind of fell over and she just laid there because she couldn't bring herself to move but once we got to the vet you know just 22 minutes or so later she would stand up she'd look out the window if she heard other animals she was just much more with it and alert and more like her normal self well long story short two x-rays a chest x-ray and an abdomen x-ray and then a couple of blood tests later and we learned that she had aspiration pneumonia So basically what had happened is at 4pm when she'd thrown up, she had inhaled some of the water and some of the throw up and not only were her lungs fighting to clear themselves of fluid, which is actually pretty difficult for lungs to do, but also the infection had already started in. You know, lungs are not meant to contain bits of food. So the poor little mite was given uh, very strong uh, antibiotics. She's still on them right now. 
And we were told to get her a generic antacid like Prilosec, which is what we picked up, just like literally the over-the-counter antacid Prilosec, and then to put her on a bland diet. So my husband, while we were still waiting, he cooked up rice and some turkey because that's all we had. And then we've had her on a diet of boiled rice and boiled chicken since then. And I have to admit that by the time we got home, she was already doing so much better. She took her antibiotics. She actually ate something that evening. She was still very tired. Uh, The first day, so Saturday, she was slept basically most of the day. She didn't beg for food quite as heavily as she usually does. She wasn't as noisy as she usually is. She just was very restful, like she was sleeping through it. But since then, she's just been getting better and better. She does still have some moments where she like runs a bit too fast or starts like barking, which she loves to do. And then that triggers her to cough. But we're trying to keep her quiet. We're you know trying to keep her as calm as possible. We're trying to let her heal. And um, lots of snuggles are probably needed for that. And we are only too happy to oblige. So she's been getting even more attention than usual. And we've just really been loving on her a lot. Uh, it was very, very scary for both of us. Um, my husband and I, we don't have children. <laughs> we uh, have our all of our many, many animals and we absolutely adore them. And so it was a little scary for all of us, but I'm very, very pleased with how things ended up. In other sort of poorly animal news, Squeak, who is one of my rescue hens, she's the girl with a little cut beak who lives with old lady Agatha in the special needs coop. It's just the two of them. Well, maybe 10 days ago now, maybe coming up on two weeks, she started to look unwell. You know, she would stand kind of fluffed up. She looked kind of sleepy. And I noticed that she wasn't eating and Squeak has never been a great eater for me. She's not as um, filled out as I'd like her to be. She's always been on the lower end of the weight scale, but she was still a regular and enthusiastic eater. Well, I sort of took a look at her and felt that she was getting worse. And because I have had so many sick chickens at this point, I have a little stockpile of antibiotics that have been dosed for chickens and then painkillers as well, both uh, pill form and liquid form. So I decided what I would do is I would treat her at home with a course of antibiotics and painkillers and see if she improved. If there was no improvement, we would go to the vet and I'm sure I would have been hit with a huge bill for blood tests and all the other things that we have to do. But thankfully, within about 48 to 72 hours, she actually responded really, really well to um, the antibiotics and to the painkillers. She was brighter, she became more active. And initially, it was difficult to get her to eat. So I was trying to entice her with things like raw egg or scrambled egg. I used a... um, vitamin and mineral product called Nutri Drench, which you can get from your feed store or tractor supply. Uh, I was giving her yogurt, I was cutting up greens for her. And at first she wasn't eating a huge amount, but I think as the antibiotics took effect, she really started to pick up. And eventually, I'd say within about four days, she was back to normal. So she finished her course of antibiotics a couple of days ago. I took her off the pain medication at the same time that the antibiotic course ended. And she's just her usual happy chickeny self since then. So I'm really, really pleased with that. Um, If God forbid that she had passed, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with Agatha. Um, Agatha actually doesn't mind living alone. She has briefly lived alone before. But once the weather gets cold, you know, I'm already thinking ahead to hopefully still having my old lady Agatha in the winter. She can't keep her body heat up by herself she would need a companion but thankfully I don't have to worry about that those two girls are still together now speaking of my chickens they have started to roam off my property and that's a problem specifically because they kept on going to my next door neighbor's flower beds and my neighbor's are really good sport. She has told me many times that she loves my little farm, as she calls it. She really wants me to get baby goats, which, yeah, I want baby goats too, but I'm not willing to get that amount of fencing at this point. 
but yeah, she's very, very uh, sweet. She's very understanding. She loves to watch my chickens, but she works really, really hard on her garden. And I don't want my birds going in there, messing up all of her hard work. So originally I was just keeping an eye out for them and then chasing them off. Then I put out stakes with bird scare tape on it because I was hoping that that would keep them away, but it didn't. So in the end, I basically went out and I used bird netting to erect a fence, which basically makes it so that they have the back of the property and the side of the property and that's it. They can no longer walk up around the front. They can't get into my beds. They can't wander over to the far side bed and they can't get into my neighbor's yard. Now, theoretically, if they went through the tree line, they could navigate around my fence, but they haven't figured that out yet. I also have piled up a lot of branches along that tree line since we've moved here when I'm doing yard cleanup. So that sort of, you know, impedes their progress. It makes it more difficult. So fingers crossed, this has been working really, really well. They're not trying to get around it. And so now they are stuck on the back and the side of the property where they can't ruin my beds or my neighbor's beds. So that is really, really good. Um, in other poultry news, we recently reunited a turkey hen with her farm after she'd been on the run for a week. If you saw my Instagram post about this, you'll know the basic gist, but what happened was it was a Sunday morning, very, very early. And my husband heard this uh, bird call that he couldn't place. And so he went outside and he found a turkey hen on the far side bed of our property. And he was watching her, he grabbed his camera, he took some photos of her and he came upstairs and he woke me up. You know, he's basically like, kitten, do you wanna come and see the, uh, there's a turkey in the yard, do you wanna come and see her? And I'm, you know, it's early on Sunday, I'm snuggled in bed, I have my loony with me. I'm like, no, like, no, 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 you take photos, that's fine, I'm just gonna sleep. So I went back to sleep. But then he comes back and he said, I think we have a duckling situation. And by this, what he meant was that he thought this was a pet turkey that someone had dumped, like those dumped ducklings that we rescued from the side of a canal. So obviously I heard ducklings, I shot right up like babies, there are babies for me. And I, you know, threw on some uh, like warm clothes and um, went out to look. And sure enough, this was definitely not a wild turkey. For one thing, she was completely solid black, with a sort of silver or slate gray legs. And that is not wild turkey coloring. And she also had a red band on her leg. So at some point she had belonged to someone. Now what really tickled me was that when I Googled black turkey hens, what came up was the Norfolk black turkey. And that's Norfolk as in England. This is originally a British heritage breed. And it's also quite a rare breed in the US. And it's considered like a conservancy bird where people are encouraged to breed them because their numbers are so limited. So obviously I'm like, okay, this is definitely someone's pet. She was quite tame. Someone is missing her. So we decided that we had to catch her and it really wasn't difficult at all. Although once we picked her up, like all birds, she did panic a bit and we got a wing to the face and wow, turkeys are so much stronger than my chickens. It was quite painful to take a turkey wing to the face. But what we chose to do is we put her in the chicken run and we kept the chickens from accessing the run for the day. So we let them into the coop, but they could just run wild and they wouldn't go into the run. And I had no idea what I was going to do if we still had her by nighttime. But at that point, I was just like, okay, she's contained. Now I can start seeing if I can find her person. And so I went onto Facebook and I went to my homesteading groups and my chicken keeping groups for my local area. And I basically said, hey, I know this is strange and I know these are chicken groups, but is anyone missing a black turkey hen? And within 45 minutes, her mum got in touch with me and was like, that's my girl, that's Sam. 
So it turns out that what happened is Sam lives on a farm that basically abuts the very end of our road here. So we're sort of right when you turn into the road if you follow it all the way down though it's a dead end and there's farmland there and their farm uh, leads up to that end of the road so at some point Sam the turkey hen had an injury to her back and her legs and so her mum had brought her inside the house to recover once she felt that Sam had recovered she took her out to their fenced-in pasture And Sam's feet touched the ground and she just took off like a shot. She flew over the pasture fence and she disappeared. So her people did look for her. Uh, They they had no luck finding her. They were hoping she'd come back to the coop because, you know, she knew it. She'd grown up there. They've had her since she was like a little turkey poult. Well, no luck. So after about five days, her mum basically was like, she's probably been eaten by a coyote or hit by a car. Well, no, she was here. And I actually suspect that she's been on our road the whole time because my beekeeping neighbour, who's a few houses down, puts out corn for the deer. And he had actually texted me that morning to say, hey, there's a turkey eating all of my corn. And he thought it was a wild turkey and he sort of chased it on. It went to another neighbor's yard with chickens and tried to get in the run with the chickens. So she chased it up to the front of her property. And that's how Sam ended up wandering down the road, finding us and being rescued. So within about 20 minutes of contacting her mum, the... um. She sent her husband over and her husband came and got her and the family was happily reunited. So that was so fun. Um, I couldn't believe the fact that we found her people so fast and that we could get her home so quickly. And also um, the guy who came to pick her up was quite young, like possibly younger than I am. And it kind of shocked me and was pleasing that there are other people in this area around my age or younger who are really into this whole like farming and homesteading life it just made me really happy to see that I tend to assume that other homesteaders in this area are older so it was really nice to see people kind of closer to my own age who um are are in this farming life so that's my turkey story and after that I was completely wired um I did a ton of reading about Norford black turkeys and I was just really fascinated by uh the whole issue of these like rare turkey breeds that um people are encouraged to breed so that was fun for me I had a good day there and Speaking of random poultry, um, the day after this episode is posted, I will be collecting a guinea fowl hen from a friend of mine. So she lives about an hour, a little bit further than that maybe from me. And she is also a chicken mama. And basically about a week ago, a guinea fowl hen showed up on their property and was really trying hard to get into the run with her chickens. And at first they, you know, wanted to keep her away because they were worried about disease transmission. But then they were like, well, this was right before we had a big cold snap and they were worried about her either freezing to death or predators getting her. And so they decided to let her in the run with the chickens and she's been there ever since. The problem, however, is that guinea fowl are known for being very, very noisy And my friend lives in a more suburban area than I do. And they're very worried about the neighbours getting upset. But also her husband's been working from home and he cannot stand the racket. So she reached out to me knowing that I am the official crazy animal person of our friend group. And she asked if I would be interested. And I said, yeah. So I will be picking her up. And the plan is to get her adjusted to life here 
I will be keeping her for about a week in the chicken run and she will be kept separate from the chickens during that time. That gives me time to check her out for any signs of illness or anything that she might be able to transmit to my flock. But also what's really important with guinea fowl is that they get used to exactly where they live. Um, They're known for wandering quite far and even a guinea fowl that you've raised yourself might one day just disappear into the wild. So I'm going to give her a week to adjust to living in the run. I'm putting like a covered nest box and everything or covered nest area in there for her and she'll have her own food and water and all that kind of stuff and I'll make sure that she has a good balanced diet during that time because she you know guinea fowl spend a lot of time roaming and grubbing for food so I need to make sure that she gets like a good insect based diet. And then after a week, I'm going to allow her to integrate with the flock and I'm optimistic that it will go well. If it does not, or if she's just too noisy and my neighbor gets upset, um, I know a ton of people in this area, um, or I know we're not friends, but I know of a lot of people in this area who do keep guinea fowl and do post looking for hens. So I'm pretty confident that if it doesn't work, I can find her a loving, experienced home where she will be very welcome. So watch this space. I will, of course, post pictures on my Instagram once I have her, and I'm really excited about that. So as I kind of alluded to just a second ago, our beautiful warm weather abandoned us and we had a cold snap, including snow. And again, if you follow my Instagram, you might have seen my posts about this. I literally woke up, up, looked out the window, saw the snow had actually settled on everything and said, what is this bullshit? To which my husband laughed. But um, I wasn't too worried about the plants but I did have some concerns about my surviving bee colony. And this leaves me to hive updates. So when I saw the snow forecast, I didn't think it would stick around, but when I woke up and I saw that it actually had coated the ground, it had coated tree limbs, I decided that I would go out and I would put the wrap, the winter wrap back on my colony and add a small quilt box just in case there was a large moisture buildup. And as I did this, I could see that the snow was already getting kind of mushy and that it probably wasn't going to stick around longer than 24 hours, but it did snow on and off throughout the day and into the following morning. So in hindsight, I am glad that I made the decision to wrap them. I'm pretty confident they would have survived fine without it, but it's nice to give them that extra insulation. Now, this colony has consistently been flying at much lower temperatures than I'm used to seeing with honeybees and when I put the quilt box on I you know I wasn't wearing a veil because it's really cold outside I didn't think I would see them but a lot of them were up there right by the the um the top of the hive on the feeder and a few actually flew up and kind of inspected me to see what I was doing and so I just sort of tried to stay calm because I wasn't veiled and you know kind of gently ushered them back inside and put the quilt box on and you know put the lid on put the wrap on and finished up. Now right before the warm weather disappeared I did a hive inspection and things were looking really really good. There was a noticeable increase in drone brood so I did keep an eye out for signs of potential swarming such as no eggs. So if a colony decides that they're going to swarm they will exercise the queen to slim her down so that she can fly and during this process of her slimming down and losing weight she will stop laying so if you go in and it's swarm it's that time of year where swarms happen and you don't find any eggs and you do find you know swarm cells on the you know there on the bottom of the frames that's a good sign that the colony has made a decision. But I was seeing eggs and I wasn't seeing swarm cells. So that made me feel like I had a little bit more time. Now, I actually got to go out today because the cold weather has gone and we're back to 80 degrees. Very bizarre. So I wanted to take the opportunity to really see what was going on in there. And I did a hive inspection. I took the wrap off. I took the quilt box off. Hopefully we shouldn't need it based on the weather forecast. Now, today was kind of annoying. So I basically decided based on the weather forecast and what I saw in the hive that I would make a nucleus colony. 
it would take some of those frames of eggs and brood pollen to feed them and then honey as well and I could then put in frames with wax built up but you know basically empty so it's sort of expanding the brood nest a little bit giving them a little extra room and I also put on the main colony an additional honey super because they are already working hard on filling up the honey super that they have and I'm annoyed because everything went fine. The I built the nucleus colony. It looks good. Um, I'm you know pretty optimistic that even with some slightly cooler night temps that they're going to be okay. I'm just annoyed because when I looked at the hive afterwards, I did kind of wonder if I should have just gone ahead and split it. Um, so with a nucleus colony, I use five frame nuke. So I literally just took five frames from the main colony with a split I would have taken half of everything so right now they have two brood boxes so two deep boxes and two honey supers and I would have taken one of the brood boxes and one of the honey supers I still have time to do that if I feel like they're building consistently with their population and their um stores that I can do that but it just kind of annoyed me to I don't know not be perfect the first time around and speaking about not being perfect the first time around what really upset me was that um, I decided this year I was going to mark all my queens and so I bought this really cool little disc and I'm going to have a picture and I'll put it on my blog so you can find it in the episode description go to my website and you'll find it and you literally just press it gently into the frame and it sort of cages in the queen and then you use the marking pen through the grid to mark her and I tested on a drone and it went perfectly so I was like great this is all working really really well so I put the queen there and a she's way faster than a drone (laughs) and b my pen just my like little ink pen which a minute ago had worked so well just like globbed out so much ink that or paint I should say that I got it all over her wings and she was freaking out so she had the dot dot on her abdomen but now her wings are covered as well and she's freaking out she's desperately trying to groom her the bees start like covering her and I was worried because I've heard that sometimes if you paint queens it can cover up the smell of their pheromones and then the colony will kill her so I'm like no please don't kill her but they were just desperately trying to lick all the paint off her so I watched them for a little bit longer just to make sure it didn't turn ugly and that she was ultimately okay and I think she was Um, but I'm just sort of kicking myself for not practicing more for not being more careful for not being perfect at something the first time I did it Um, but yes so I have set myself some homework that I will be capturing drones and marking them um moving forward until I feel more confident to use that again on a queen because you know worst case scenario they kill her and then replace her which I really hope doesn't happen I'm cautiously optimistic that things were okay based on their response I did watch for a little while so yeah apparently I'm not very good at that and I am going to need to practice Uh, But yeah, so right now I have a nucleus colony. They have the eggs and brood that they need. Hopefully they can raise a queen. So I'll keep you apprised of how that goes. And then I'll let you know as well if I need to split this big colony. I'm thinking that might happen. I also just got notification that my package of carniolan bees has been shipped. So that will be arriving sometime within the next two days. And it's good timing because I've just finished painting my top bar hive. And all I need to do now is literally take it out, put the legs on, set it up and get prepared for my package. So I've made some sugar syrup and I've added some of that honeybee healthy product, which is supposed to help stimulate with raising brood and producing wax. I thought I'd give it a go this year. It smells really, really good. So it's fun to work with. Um, This top bar hive that I have is really, really big. I'm very excited to show you how it looks. And I will, of course, update everyone about how I get on working with a top bar hive. 
So that is most of my news. Um, oh, so going back to Homestead News just for a minute, I did a complete clean out of my coop today because I was in such a bad mood after my painting disaster with my queen that I needed to do something physical and the weather was good. And so I basically took all of the bedding and I do the deep litter method. So it's almost, it's like a foot to two feet of partially composted bedding. And I cleaned out all of it. And then I put down that first Saturday lime that I'm trying out to help with the lice issue that I keep having. And I put fresh bedding down and I hung up a feeder and I cleaned out all the nest boxes. And I did all of this, which was a lot of work while my rooster continued to attack me. So two times I picked him up and paraded him around to humiliate him and gave him what I call force coodles and tried to show him who was boss. And every time I put him down, he would just attack me again. So I ended up having to carry my rake with me while I was working and using that to keep him away. And again, it's not like he's cutting me with his spurs, but he's really strong and I have a lot of bruises. (laughs) So um, yeah, I was just done. By the time I was done with that, I had just enough time to shower, feed my dogs, throw some baked potatoes in the oven and have at least one drink. I'm on my second rum and ginger ale now and I'm recording this for you guys. So we're on track, I'm in a better mood and food is on the way. All right, so I'm sorry that was so long. Apparently I had a lot of news and now we are moving into the book review, the final chapter. So chapter 10 is called Swarm Smarts. And it opens with a quote, as all the others have before it. For so work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. And that is by William Shakespeare from Henry V, which was originally published in 1599. So we've gone through this whole book and we're coming now to the final chapter, chapter 10. What can we learn from the decision-making process that this book has outlined about honeybee swarms? And Seeley feels that the bees have much to teach us. And he has even applied their methods to, or methods of decision-making to his real day-to-day life. In 2005, he became the department head of neurobiology and behavior at Cornell. And he introduced ways for the faculty to make decisions based on the swarm smarts of honeybees. He likes to think that the faculty's apparent satisfaction with the decisions that they have made indicates that this implementation of honeybee decision making was a success. Seeley also compares honeybee swarm decisions to that of a New England town meeting. And he chose this specific example as these meetings are a form of small town government that have existed for more than 300 years. And they use a similar collective decision-making process. To quote Seeley, once a year, the citizens in a town come together in an open, face-to-face assembly and render binding collective decisions, laws, that govern the actions of everyone in the town. Seely breaks this chapter up into five lessons based on the swarm's decision-making process. Lesson number one. Compose the decision-making group of individuals with shared interests and mutual respect. Working together productively requires, at the bare minimum, a certain alignment of interest so that all involved or are amenable to working together as a cohesive unit. In a similar vein, a certain amount of mutual respect avoids infighting, bruised egos, pride and dismissals from interrupting the debate process. With a honeybee swarm, we see how all the bees have a common goal and that is to find a new nest site. And to do this successfully basically means their continued survival. Indeed, biologists now know that no individual worker bee can be said to have succeeded without the survival and reproduction of her colony. 
the genetic su success of each worker bee can only be achieved if the colony as a whole survives. We know that worker bees themselves did not reproduce. Instead, they rely on the queen, who is both the colony's reproductive heart, as well as the propagator of reproductive units in the form of drones, which is kind of the sperm of the colony, and daughter queens, which are like the ova. To quote Seeley, because the workers have a common need for their colony to thrive, and because a thriving colony passes the workers' genes into the future with near-perfect impartiality, it is not surprising that the workers of a honeybee colony cooperate strongly to serve the common good. With people, it's a little less clear-cut. A group of us rarely, if ever, share such a true singularity of purpose – Rarely do we rely intrinsically on each other to survive. Knowing this, what can we do to work better as a group that comes together to make decisions? And one of these things is basically just to remind any decision-making group that they have gathered together because all of them share some stake in the welfare of said group. Just as Seeley would remind members of his department that the goal is to make decisions that ultimately strengthen the department as a whole, which really benefits all of them. And we also see that at a New England town meeting, this reminder of shared purpose comes from the moderator. And this person helps focus and navigate the group through the decision making process. Now, it helps, of course, to form a group of generally reasonable individuals who are respectful of others' opinions and share a willingness to listen. Sadly, it's often difficult to create such a cohesive group, but that doesn't mean that all is lost or that there's no point to gathering to make decisions in this way. There are formats and procedures that foster cohesion and forward momentum within any decision-making group. For example... Having all comments passed to the moderator can prevent arguments and bickering. It also allows all opinions to be collected by a neutral party whose goal is to move the meeting forward productively. In a similar way, as department head, Seeley notes how he has had to politely end demoralising stalemates or interject between two colleagues engaged in a heated exchange that was becoming more personal than it was professional. To quote him once again, such things reawaken my appreciation of the marvellous absence of Carose's relations among the debating bees. Lesson number two, minimise the leader's influence on the group's thinking. A honeybee swarm is perfectly democratic with power spread evenly amongst all of the scout bees. There is no single leader that makes the final decision or steers the debate in one particular direction. In direct comparison, many human groups do function with a single leader. So how might a leader behave in order to foster the most democratic process? Whenever possible, they should remain impartial, limiting their direct involvement in the decision-making process. For instance, the individual should avoid stating what outcome they wish to occur and should instead foster open debate among all viewpoints, abstaining from prioritising one over another. They should also remain open to criticism of their role and the role of others in order for the debate to be truly free and open. If a group leader were to indicate their desired outcome, they have influenced the debate before it's even begun, either through those wishing to please the leader by supporting their viewpoint or those who are just set on opposing them. Thomas Seeley offers the example of President George W. Bush and his decision to invade Iraq in 2003. Those who worked with President Bush described his leadership style as headstrong, and so when he told his foreign policy advisers of his deeply held belief that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction and needed to be removed, his advisers fell in line with his thinking. They did not question him, they didn't debate options, and arguably they didn't consider the full ramifications of going to war. By all accounts, they squandered the opportunity to use group intelligence and instead made a decision based on one man's gut instinct. 
Let's compare this to how a moderator of a New England town meeting behaves. Their goal is not to steer the discussion their way, but instead to make sure that every registered voter is allowed time to speak, that any debate is conducted fairly, and that decisions are made in a timely manner. Lesson three, seek diverse solutions to the problem. Sometimes an issue has a simple solution. Seeley likens this to opening a door. We either push or we pull to open it. Other issues are a lot more complex, and it's here that a diverse range of views is far superior than one despotic individual calling all the shots. Scoutbees show us the benefits of a large and diverse group of individuals exploring on their own. Each scout bee explores alone, searching far and wide for potential nest sites. She will examine and judge any site that she finds and then announce her discovery at the swarm cluster should she have found the nest site to be suitable. In this way, a myriad of possible new nest sites are brought to the cluster for consideration, expanding their chances of finding a high quality site in which to establish themselves. To achieve something similar in our own groups, Seeley suggests the following four criteria. Number one, ensure the group is sufficiently sized, not too small and not too large. Number two, ensure the group is diverse. Number three, foster independent exploratory thought and work. Number four, create an environment in which the group members feel comfortable to propose ideas and solutions. Sometimes not all of these elements can be implemented. For instance, Seeley could not change the size and composition of his faculty meetings, but he could encourage creative thinking and he could also foster an encouraging environment so that all felt comfortable to express their ideas. Similarly, encouraging brainstorming where suggestions are taken from the group to tackle a problem fosters open debate and results in numerous possible actions for consideration. Seeley would also specifically call on members who had not yet spoken during a meeting to ensure that all had had an opportunity to speak and this also rules out reticence or shyness from preventing a good option or a good opinion being made available to the group. New England town meetings rely specifically on something called Robert's Rules of Order, which was written by Henry M. Robert, an engineer in the US Army, and published in 1876. And they use this as a guide for their meetings. One noteworthy rule is that each participant in a meeting may express their opinion on an issue, but no individual may speak twice on said issue until all have had the opportunity to speak. This prevents any one person from dominating the discussion and allows a greater degree of fairness within the debate. The ultimate goal here is to tap the full collective knowledge of the group. Lesson number four, aggregate the group's knowledge through debate. How does a group most effectively take the collective knowledge and opinions of its members to make a single decision? Humanity has created a number of methods to do this, from majority rule to winner-takes-all, weighted voting, etc., just to name a few. This problem of social choice is not unique to humans. Many other species face the same challenge, namely how to come to a decision when there is strong disagreement amongst a group's members. Perhaps honeybees have provided an answer for us, one homed over millions of years of natural selection. A honeybee swarm scout bees compete to recruit support from a pool of scout bees not yet committed to a nest site location. Whichever group of scouts first reaches a quorum of supporters wins. This group then goes on to build consensus so that all scouts are in agreement before the swarm takes flight towards its new home. What's so impressive about this whole process is that it almost always results in the swarm selecting the very best site of the options provided. Seeley also finds noteworthy how the process balances interdependence and independence amongst the scout bees. The scouts function independently in their search for potential nest sites and in their communication of discovery to the swarm. This reporting is crucial as it brings nest site possibilities to the debate. 
we know that a Scout Bee reports a site's location and quality through her waggle dance. This allows other non-committed Scouts to find the site, examine it themselves and then report, via dance, their findings. A high-quality site will be danced for with great enthusiasm and strength, quickly leading to a positive feedback loop of recruitment and dancing that leads to its prominence amongst the options. Since the scouts recruit from a finite pool of additional scout bees, eventually the majority of these recruited bees will be drawn to a strong site until a quorum is reached. In this way, the best site prevails, even if it's discovered late in the process of site reporting. The interdependence is seen in this process of recruitment, but one key aspect of independence has a profound effect on the debate, and that's whether a scout bee chooses to report a site. Scout bees don't blindly follow another based on their enthusiastic waggle dance. She will inspect a site herself and come to a decision on its quality. If it's lacking, she will not dance for it, or she might do so weakly. And this allows for errors in reporting to be rectified. Failing to check the veracity of communal wisdom can lead to catastrophic decisions, such as what we saw with the stock market in the late 1990s. Investors sunk billions of dollars into companies that lacked value purely based on what other investors were buying. They created an uncontested positive feedback loop that led to disaster because no one actually took the time to look into the companies and assess their quality. Seeley suggests three factors to assist in utilising the wisdom of the bees in this area. One, foster frank debate, integrating information dispersed among the group members. Two, foster good communication within the group. Three, recognise the need to listen critically, to form your own opinion and then register your views independently. And once more, this can be seen at New England town meetings. To quote Seeley, in both bee swarms and town meetings, the heart of the decision-making process is an open competition of ideas that are publicly shared but privately evaluated. One practical application that might be of merit is the use of secret ballot after a period of open and free debate. This ensures that peer pressure or fear of reprisal does not influence those voting. And Seeley has actually found that this works well when he was department head. Lesson five, use quorum responses for cohesion, accuracy and speed. It might initially seem wise to allow a democratic group to debate until one single action is selected by all members to ensure ultimate fairness. But this is often impossible and aside from that, it's extremely time consuming. Plus, maybe there is no single solution that works for everyone in that group. Perhaps there's not enough time available to come to a full agreement due to an emergency or some other time limiting factor. So what can be done? To quote Seeley, usually there are costs associated with the decision process and the accumulatory costs of further debate can eventually outweigh the benefits. Honeybees appear to have found a rather tidy solution to this problem, using quorum sensing to reach a decision. Specifically, for their behaviour to change rapidly once that threshold number, the quorum, has been reached. We know that a swarm must stay together to survive, and so consensus has to be reached before the swarm can fly as a cohesive unit to its new home. We also know that the bees invest heavily in the house hunting process. This period can go on for as many as several days, and they publicly debate all nest sites reported. Once the number of scouts at one of the sites reaches a threshold or quorum, these scouts will abruptly return to the swarm cluster and begin preparing their sisters for flight through worker piping. These piping signals to the clustered bees to begin warming their flight muscles and likely informs any scouts still advertising for the losing sites that they should return to the swarm and cease reporting. In this way, we can see that the quorum of scouts triggers key behavioural changes, which together act as a mechanism to accelerate a consensus being reached. 
This quorum response allows thousands of bees to ready themselves for flight before a consensus has been reached, thereby shorting the period of time in which the swarm is clustered out in the open, vulnerable to predation and the weather. Quorum response used in our own groups can equally allow a decision to be reached in good time and with a high degree of accuracy. Seeley offers an example. If his faculty meetings are faced with a major decision that requires a unanimous vote, he has used straw polls by secret ballot to assess how close the group is to consensus. If they are far from unanimity, then further considered debate is required. If, however, they are close to an agreement, usually the minority voters will realise that further debate is unwarranted and will yield their position. Thus, this method of straw polls offers a quorum response that accelerates reaching a consensus. To quote Seeley once more, Of course, in a human group, as in a bee swarm, individuals should operate with a high threshold when making a quorum response to avoid sacrificing the accuracy of a group's decision making. And now we move on to the epilogue. And this basically acts as a succinct summary of the book. Some 60 years ago, Martin Lindauer happened upon a swarm cluster of honeybees and noticed dirty dancers. Bees covered in soot, red brick dust and grey soil, all of them enthusiastically dancing upon the surface of the cluster. And he wondered if these bees were so dusty because they had left the cluster in search of new nesting sites. This chance observation and the questions that arose from it led Lindauer embarking upon his study of how honeybee swarms find their new home, a time which he referred to as the most beautiful experience of his life. This book has examined the work done by Lindauer and other biologists on the process of house hunting and decision making of a honeybee swarm. We've learned how a few hundred experienced foragers go from looking for food to looking for a new home, that they share their discovery through waggle dancing, and how this leads to an extended debate about which site is best before finally an agreement is reached. Quoting Seeley, Almost always, the collective wisdom of the scout bees choose the best available option, so that the swarm occupies a nest cavity that provides good protection and sufficient space to hold the large honey stores that the colony will consume in keeping itself warm throughout winter. From this democratic decision-making process, we can identify three key factors. Number one, identifying a diverse set of options. Number two, freely sharing information about these options. Number three, aggregating this information in order to choose the best option. The bees do all of this without a leader to guide them, deftly allowing them to sidestep the pitfall of a dominating leader who pushes for a specific outcome and thus prevents the group from considering and examining a wide range of options. Although a leader can offer guidance in situations where the debate needs to be pulled back on track or when tempers are high, honeybees avoid this need due to a collective purpose. All of them are equally invested in successfully finding and navigating to a new nest site. For people, perhaps this means that debate can more readily be kept on track when all participants share a common goal. To quote Seeley, the house hunting bees remind us that the leader in a democratic group serves mainly to shape the process, not the product of the group's deliberations. Scout bees are able to bring a broad range of options to the debate through their manner of searching far and wide and individually for nest sites. No two bees will search the exact same area. Scout bees are also drawn to different kinds of sites. One scout might be drawn to seek out small knot holes some 30 foot up on a tree, while others are drawn to the cracks and crevices of buildings closer to the ground. The result of a few hundred scouts dispersing widely to examine many different potential nest sites results in a diverse range of options found within a limited time period, with as many as a dozen sites discovered in a single afternoon. 
Having found these sites means little though if they're not advertised or brought to the table to be considered. And so we can see the critical importance of how a scout bee is compelled to return to the swarm cluster and advertise her found location. Her dance both transmits directions to her site as well as her personal assessment of its quality. This makes it possible for further scouts to be recruited by visiting the site advertised and judging it for themselves. In this way, all options are brought before the swarm for consideration, with the higher quality sites gradually building support over time. It's important to note here that all scouts are free to advocate for a site, even if it's of poor quality, which if you remember in previous chapters, we have seen can happen. To quote Seeley, in a sense then, on a honeybee swarm, all views are welcomed and respected. All opinions may be voiced. Once the options have been announced, the debate begins. We have seen how this process is much like a political election with multiple candidates, the nest sites, competing advertisements, the waggle dances, individuals committed to one or another candidate, scouts supporting a site, and a pool of neutral voters, scouts not yet supporting a site. Crucially, supporters of a site can lose interest and return to the neutral voter pool, free to be recruited once more in the future. Because the site of highest quality or most suitability will elicit the strongest dances, thus recruiting more scouts to continue to dance for it, eventually it will dominate the debate. What we have learned about the bees quorum sensing and consensus building is key, not just because of the benefit it provides in terms of time and accuracy, but also for what it does not do. There is no social pressure to conform, nor is there suppression of dissenting views. Each scout bee makes her own decision based on her personal examination of a site. Now, Seeley's final paragraph of this book is so perfectly phrased that I'm just going to quote it in its entirety here. For millions of years, the scout bees on honeybee swarms have had the task of selecting proper homes for their colonies. Over this vast stretch of evolutionary time, natural selection has structured these insect search committees so that they make the best possible decisions. Now at last, we humans have the pleasure of knowing how this ingenious selection process works and the opportunity to use this knowledge to improve our own lives. Some have said that honeybees are messengers sent by the gods to show us how we ought to live in sweetness and in beauty and in peacefulness. Whether or not this is true, I believe that the story of house hunting by honeybees can inspire the light of amazement about these beautiful little creatures, a light that I hope has shined through each page of this book. And that, my friends, is Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley, done and dusted. I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> no, um, thank you so much for sticking with me during this absolutely epic book review journey. I really hope you enjoyed it and that you found the content as fascinating as I did. Um, I have to admit that I am extremely happy to have it done and behind me, and I'm looking forward to moving on to new material. I've yet to decide on the content for my next episode. I know I've talked about um, offering some lists of homesteading and farming memoirs that I found helpful, informative, or just plain fun. I still intend to provide that at some point. And because of what's going on here on my homestead, I'm sure that very soon I will be talking about top bar hives, package installations into top bar hives and guinea fowl. So I hope you'll join me again in two weeks for whatever mystery episode I come up with. Um, in the meantime, feel free to reach out over on Instagram, Facebook, or you can email me directly at homesteadhensandhoney, all one word, at gmail.com. I really love to hear from you. I don't care if it's just a hey how you doing or you guys sharing about your bees or your gardens or your chickens or dogs 
or if it's to correct me on something I am here to learn I'd like to think this is an educational podcast so feel free at any time to reach out with any kind of comment or criticism I really do enjoy hearing from you and I do my best to get back to you as soon as I can now this is the part of the episode where I give some personal updates Um, And if you would rather just skip that because I talk about physical health issues and mental health issues, which isn't for everyone, then I recommend that you turn off the episode now. And I thank you very much for joining me and I hope you will be back in two weeks. As for my news, I've kind of blathered on a lot longer than I intended already. I had a lot of news about the homestead, so I'm going to try and keep this short. Um, Things have been... A little chaotic here. Um, I've got some family issues happening back home in England and it's one of those things that's been ongoing for a while and I'm not quite ready to talk about it in detail. There's some legal stuff going on and it's very stressful and um, I'm not directly involved but you know my family members who I love very much are so um I'll just say that narcissism destroys families and makes legal matters extremely complicated. So it's just been a little kind of back and forth with my mum talking to her to make sure that she's okay and that she's progressing all right and just sort of worrying about her and how she's getting on and, and, and how legal proceedings are going. So I hope that I will eventually be able to be less vague about that but right now I don't want to go too deep in it just because you know with legal matters it's always best to be safe but you know I'm worried about my mum and um and her stress levels because she is the innocent party here but anyway personally I um I don't even know what I did to my back but after Luna's emergency room visit I woke up the next day and the muscles along my spine were just like steel and I don't usually experience pain in that area it's all lower back my um issues have always been lower back and I don't know if it's because I had to like lift her out of the car in a weird way or when I curled up with her in the back seat and if that was just weird or whatever but it was excruciatingly painful and I couldn't really do anything because shocker you actually use those muscles every time you move (laughs) so um I've had this pack of steroids that my doctor gave me for really really bad flares of pain and I finally cracked it open because I reached my limit and I'm really really glad that I did because after the first 24 hours on those it helped so much um my husband was such a champ because I am terrible about resting when I'm supposed to and he just made sure that I wasn't doing too much and he was like giving me massages and helping me apply heat picking me up heat packs from the pharmacy and just generally being really fantastic um so I'm doing so much better than that first day where I couldn't do anything but I'm still not great and it's affecting my mood you know anyone who has chronic pain or pain flares up flare-ups knows how um demoralizing it is I tend to get just extremely cranky um so I have been very um difficult I feel like with myself um but you know this good weather is helping the sun always helps and I am doing my best to stretch out those muscles take care of myself and um not be too terrible about going out and doing a million different things I've also been thinking a lot lately about the future of this podcast where I want it to go what I really want it to be um if I need to make any changes and I haven't made any decisions there so just watch this space obviously I'll let you guys know if anything changes with the structuring or the release schedule or whatever um it's nothing dramatic like I'm going to quit or anything like that it's more just sort of I really want to have a more singular vision for what I want from this podcast and I'm not sure I have that yet I've also been thinking a lot more about my vision for this homestead um 
do I want to generate further revenue from what I'm doing? And if so, I need to start thinking about laying the groundwork for that, particularly in regards to the honeybees and um, what I'm doing there. And then I've also been thinking a lot about creative things like writing. So when I was younger, I was actually a prolific writer. I wrote poems and fiction and I also, you know, showing my age here, I grew up with live journals. So I was a very diligent uh, journaler and online blogger for a long time. And I have wanted to write two books. One is fiction and one is nonfiction for a very long period of time. And I've been tinkering with it on and off and writing down my ideas and I always find excuses not to do it well lately more and more I have really been thinking about it um, and I've started the process of writing but also deciding if this is something I really want to do what needs to change what can I do to make the time available for it And what am I willing to sacrifice in order to achieve that vision? Um, I also have been, you know, keeping up with my tarot reading um, to help me with my meditation. And I now have this idea for doing like a pollinator based tarot deck or like a homestead based tarot deck with all the different species of bees or possibly even like a handful of species of bees ones that are more familiar to people like the the stunningly iridescent osmia bees bumblebees mason bees um, obviously honeybees and um, their kind of archetypes and then also like maybe different like poultry and um, like you know milk like dairy goats or dairy cows versus um like cattle like beef cattle and you know different plants on the homestead and things like that and it's just an idea but it's sort of been taking up a lot of my mind and it's something that I would like to work on um if only because it helps me dig deeper into areas that I obviously love you know I love pollinators I love bees I love homesteading and I love um everything with it and I'd really like to share it with more people and if I could do that in a creative way I feel like that would be super fulfilling so basically I'm just nasal gazing and digging deep and trying to figure out what I have time for what's a priority and maybe trying to get that creative part of me flowing a little bit more than usual so that's kind of it for me right now um I had my first COVID vaccine. I have my second one coming up really soon, next week actually. I'm very, very excited about it. Um, I hope everyone listening has had the opportunity to at least schedule their vaccine appointment because it just feels like once we are vaccinated, we can start going back out in the world. And for me specifically, that means that travel will start becoming available which is really important for me so that I can see my family and that I can see my bestie and that I can just reconnect in person with the people that I have missed so much during this pandemic. So that's it for me. I hope everyone listening is doing really well, that you're staying safe, um, that you are really leaning into spring now. For those of you in like Australia and New Zealand, I know you're in going into autumn, which is also a beautiful time of year. And it's a good time to think about what you need to do in your homestead and in your hives preparing for winter. So I hope you are chugging along with that and that things are going well. And that's really it from me. So until next time, remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Take care, everyone. I will be back in two weeks. Bye-bye.